Welcome to the Moses Lake Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This episode is brought to our church by our worship pastor, Brian Self. We hope that this message will be an encouragement to you, and we would love to hear how God used it in your life. Well, I don't normally start off my messages like this, uh, but I have a stupid joke that I want to tell. preface, this is a stupid joke. It goes something like this. 30 years ago, we had, does anyone know who this gentleman is? 30 years ago, we had Johnny Cash. We had Bob Hope and Steve Jobs. And now we have no cash, no hope, and no jobs. Please don't let Kevin Bacon die. I told you it was a stupid joke. (laughs) Our world desperately desires hope. Our politicians build campaigns built on the premise that a brighter, better future will appear. Hope will reappear if we vote for them. We have churches, rehabilitation centers, and even colleges named Hope with the intended thought being that those places will bring hope back into your life. But as we'll see this morning from Titus chapter 2, the only thing that brings real, lasting, meaningful hope into our life is God's grace. And we've been learning a lot about grace through the year. Uh, Our two series that we've learned so far throughout Ephesians have both been uh, rich in grace and walking in grace. Uh, our theme for the entire year, by grace, saved and strengthened by grace. But God's grace brings us hope. Now, this hope, as Pastor often mentions, uh, when the Bible talks about hope, it's not, I would really like my greatest desire would be that God's grace would bring hope. Instead, hope, as defined in the Bible, is a confident expectation. It is an awaiting. It is, I know the train is coming at uh, 11 o'clock. I know the train's coming, and I have a confident expectation. And God's grace brings hope back into our life. But want to do just a little bit of background for the book of Titus Uh, before we dive in. That way you can kind of see we're we're jumping right into the middle of a letter from the Apostle Paul to one of his disciples, uh, one of his co-workers, Titus. And Titus was a companion of Paul from 2 Corinthians 8. We would know that Titus was the one that was going around to the different churches in Greece and in Macedonia And uh, he was the one that was actually in charge of bringing the charity collection from the different churches in that area for the church at Jerusalem that had undergone a severe famine and a lot of the believers there were struggling. And so uh, Titus was the one tasked with actually bringing all of that money to the church at Jerusalem. Um, Paul calls Titus caring, concerned, diligent, a partner, and a co-worker to Paul. Uh, Titus was a faithful man that Paul sent this letter to. 
But Paul had sent Titus to a specific area of the world for a very particular purpose. And that area was the island of Crete, uh, just south of Greece. And uh, this was kind of a hub of the then known world because it had many port cities and you could go from Rome to one of the port cities. You could go from Greece. You could go from Asia Minor, uh, maybe from Ephesus or from the regions of Galatia to this spot. And many people, as they journeyed, would stop off in Crete. And Paul had been here, and uh, several uh, smaller churches in some of these port cities had begun. And it was a great time for the gospel. Because someone going from Rome to Ephesus might stop, might stop off in Crete, hear the gospel from a person that was living there, and then take the gospel from there to Ephesus. And then on their way back, they would maybe go to Rome and continue to bring the gospel. And so this was a very strategic place that Paul had sent Titus. Uh, Crete was home to tons of mercenary soldiers. So everything that you would think, okay, an island full of mercenary soldiers, whoever the highest bidder is, they will go to war for, quite literally. Uh, whatever you would think about the type of people that lived on the island, you are correct. In fact, the Greek word for lying, so the word lying in their language was kretizo, or to be a Cretan. <laughs> To be from the island of Crete was to be a despicable person. The island was known for violence, treachery, and sexual corruption. And in fact, corrupt leaders had been infiltrating the churches in the various cities of Crete and had been spreading false doctrine and living immorally. And Paul sent Titus to set things straight and to ordain the godly leadership in these churches. So there had been a lot of uh, evil people that had come in and uh, Titus chapter 1 and Titus chapter 3 talk about the fact that these were money-hungry people that were trying to basically fleece these churches in Crete. But Paul sent Titus, he says, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city, as I had appointed thee. And in chapter 2 of Titus, Paul is giving Titus the new gospel-created model for Cretan households, with the main thought being that a Christianity that isn't being lived out discredits God's word, creates legitimate accusations against the Christian faith, and so the message of the gospel is not compelling as a result. Instead, the gospel must be shown to others to make a real impact in the lives of Christians. However, Paul's admonition to follow God's new way is undergirded with the comfort and hope of this morning's passage. So verses 1 through 10, he gives specific instructions to the old men, the older women, the young men, the young women, and even those that were in bond service or in slavery. He gives specific instructions to them about how the gospel being lived out looks in their everyday life. But in verses 11 through 14, 
He says, okay, I've given you all of these specifics for your life, but here's how it's going to happen. Here's the strength for it. Here's the hope for it. So we're going to dive right into uh, the passage this morning, starting in verse number 11, that God's grace has illuminated his plan to us. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And when it says the grace of God has appeared, to appear is to shine upon, to become visible, or to make known. It was already there. God's grace didn't suddenly appear with Jesus. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But in the work and person of Jesus, God's grace has shined on all men. So God's grace has illuminated his plan to us, and we can see from verse 11 that God's plan is salvation. If you've been in church for any length of time, you've heard a lot about salvation or being saved or being born again. Why do we need salvation? What is salvation? Maybe for those of us that haven't been in church super long. Salvation is not, uh, I, I used to be a mean person, but now I'm a nice person. Salvation isn't, I used to struggle with addiction, and now I don't. That's not what salvation is. The Bible says that God created mankind to be in a perfect relationship with him, with each other, with the world around us at large. But the Bible makes it clear in the book of Genesis that mankind rejected God's design. And as a result, sin and death entered into the world. And it brought upon the world all of the evils that we see. Everything that we would call sin or actions that go against God's nature. It might be unkindness. It might be uh, killing. It might be adultery, thievery, uh, rape, genocide. All of the horrible things that you could think of in this world came about as a result of sin. But God loved us too much to leave us in our fallen condition. And the Bible says that God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5 says that... Uh, God commends his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5 said that God made the one who did not know sin, Jesus, to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Because the Bible says in Romans 6 that the wages or the penalty or what we earned through our sin, through all of the bad things that we've done in our life, is death. And the Bible makes it clear that it's not just a physical death that we all die, but it is a spiritual death. You see, when we die, there are only two possible places that we could go, to heaven or to hell. And for a lot of people, they think, okay, if at the end of my life I've done more good things than bad things, or if I'm better than my sister or my neighbor, or if I'm not as bad as Hitler, then I can get into heaven. But the Bible makes it clear that heaven is perfect because it's God's home and God is perfect without any sin. And so as a result, we being sinful can only go to hell. However, 
God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die in our place. And we'll look at that a little bit later as well. But because Jesus died in our place, he now offers salvation. He offers a reconciled relationship to God. And he offers a home in heaven for us when we die. And all of this has happened because of God's grace. Salvation is only by grace, not by works, not by earning, not by being good enough, not by simply not doing terrible things. God's grace brings salvation. We did not seek it out or earn it. So the grace of God has brought salvation. But then we can see in the later part of verse number 11, God's plan is for everyone. It says, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Ladies, I'm sorry, you're just not allowed to go to heaven, I guess. No, all men is all mankind, everybody. As the Southerners might say, all y'all. There's never been a person that God hasn't loved. From the rich to the destitute, from the religious to those that want nothing to do with religion, from the youngest child to the oldest person, from the one that thinks they're perfect to the one on death row who knows just how terrible they are, God loves everyone. One of the great truths of the word of God is that God is not a respecter of persons. He does not show favoritism in anything that he does. If you are breathing, some of you will probably have breathed sometime in that silence. God loves you. God loves you so much that he sent his son to die in your place. And so God's plan is salvation, that we would no longer suffer under the curse of sin, but instead we can be reconciled to God both now and forever through what Jesus Christ has done and God's plan is for everyone. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you've never accepted God's gift of salvation, today can be the day that you do that. But not only do we see from verse 11 that God's grace has illuminated his plan to us, but we can see that God's grace instructs us in his way. We can see this in verses number 12 and 13. It says, the grace of God teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We can see here that grace doesn't just bring us salvation. It's not just a carrier, but it is also a teacher. And we can see the word teaching here in this verse means to train, to educate, to discipline. And from this, we can, uh, we can see that if all God did for us was save us from the penalty of sin, which is death and hell, it would be far more than we could ever repay and much more than we could ever earn. However, God also has an entirely new way of life for his children. This new way of life, however, isn't like how the world gives a new life. It isn't a 12-step program. It's not being given new job opportunities. It is a day-by-day -day walk with God himself. And this word teaching that grace teaches us 
is a word that describes how a parent or schoolmaster would teach a child. God doesn't view his new way as a get this perfect the first time or else kind of route. He views your new Christian life as a little child just learning their ABCs. This means that we don't have to fear the Zeus God ready to strike us down the moment that we fall. Instead, we, because of God's unmerited favor, his grace, we can learn to walk in God's new way, knowing we have forgiveness and strength to go forward. I love the words of the song, My Testimony, that say, if I'm not dead, then you're not done. And it uh, makes me think of the verse in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he that hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And in verses 12 through 13, we can see that God's grace teaches us three specific actions that we can take as we walk in God's new way. And the first of these is that God's way is rejecting self. So I need all of you to collectively throw me out of the building. You need to reject self. My last name is Self, for those of you that don't know. So Brian Self, reject me. God's way is rejecting self. And we can see this in verse 12 where it says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust. Now, what do I mean by rejecting self? Is this a kind of uh, monk type asceticism that says I'm going to uh, renounce all fancy clothes and I'm just going to wear a sackcloth robe and I'm going to go sit on top of a mountain and think about what a terrible person I am for 20 years. No, that is not the kind of rejection of self or uh, what we see here in this verse, denying ungodliness and worldly lust. That's not what it's talking about. Here in this verse, the word ungodliness is the word in Greek, asebia, or a lack of reverence for God. The grace of God teaches us that just because we think something, just because we want to do something, just because our natural way is to do something doesn't mean that we have to embrace that way. Instead, because we've been made new, because of Christ's sacrifice, because we've been reconciled to God, there is now a new way where just because I want to uh, give a person a hand gesture when they cut me off in traffic or just because I want to say something unkind uh, to my family member because they were rude to me or because uh, they, as my sister once experienced someone in the family ate her leftover Olive Garden and she got upset at someone. <laughs> Just because we have a desire to do something doesn't mean that we have to obey that desire. And here in this verse, there are two specific things that uh, grace teaches us to deny, which is to reject, it's to renounce and that is ungodliness or viewing the world without a reverence for God. We all know in our world today, there are plenty of people that don't think that God should have any authority in, in their life or maybe even in the lives of others. But how often as Christians, as those that profess to know Jesus and name Jesus as Lord, how often do we go throughout our day 
and not live our lives in reverence of God. Going, hmm, God has his new way. Is how I'm reacting to my coworker right now? Is, are the thoughts that I'm having right now? Is the attitude that I'm expressing towards my kids right now, is that reflective of God's nature? Or is it reflective of my old way, of what I used to be? And grace teaches us, it trains us to say no to a life lived without God. And it also teaches us to deny worldly lusts or desires. One preacher said it this way, wherever the grace of God comes effectually or with an effect, it makes the one who was loose living deny the desires of the flesh. It causes the man who lusted after gold to conquer his greediness. It brings the proud man away from his ambitions. It trains the idler to diligence, and it sobers the wanton mind which cared only for the frivolities of life. Not only do we leave these lusts, but we deny them. But you see, merely rejecting self isn't the answer. If all you did was say, okay, I I really want to hit this person because they're being dumb, I'm not going to do that. That's by itself is not God's new way. Instead, God's way is rejecting self and embracing him. And we can see this continued in verse number 12. The grace of God teaches us that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. The word soberly here means with sound mind, temperate, or self-controlled. And in this verse, we can see Uh, that we are taught by the grace of God to live soberly or with a sound mind as regards to our personal life. That as we go through life, we don't view life in a godless way. Instead, we view life how God views our life. You might say, how does God view my life? How does God view me and my relationships? Well, we find that out by reading his word. And as we dive into God's word, we discover the mind of God. That's why Paul exhorted the Philippian church in Philippians 2 to put on the mind of Christ. It's why he encouraged the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 6 to put on the helmet of salvation. That the way in which you view life is through the fact that God has forgiven my sins because of Jesus And as a result, I have a whole new way of living. So we not only see that God's way is rejecting self and embracing him, embracing how he views the world. And I meant to mention this, that we live soberly thinking the right way about our life and about God and about others. But we also live righteously. Another way you might phrase that would be justly. That in your dealings with others, you treat them the right way. And it doesn't take a necessarily uh, Christian person to not steal from someone or not kill someone. Uh, There are plenty of non-Christians out there that do this. But in a Christian, in a gospel way, 
our walk with others and our interactions with others are not merely, I'm not going to do wrong by you. It's, I'm going to do right by you. I'm going to seek your betterment. I'm going to help you to be able uh, to be better. Maybe at work, it might be not merely that you don't take things from your coworkers, but you help them to be able to do their job. Uh, it might be for your family that you not only don't smack your sibling uh, when they're being annoying. I'm, I'm looking over at, at Thomas's. You guys have a lot of siblings. I'm sure there's sometimes when you might want to smack a couple of them. But it's, it's, I'm going to help you with whatever task. It is not just not doing wrong. It's also, how can I help? How can I do something for you? And how would God's grace teach us to live righteously or to do right by other people? Because Christ did right by us. He not only didn't do wrong by us, but he gave himself completely and totally on our behalf. He has given us as Ephesians 1 and Romans 8 tell us, he has given us all heavenly riches in Christ. So we are taught by grace to live soberly, thinking the right way about ourselves, our personal life. We are taught to live righteously, justly with those around us. And we are taught to live godly or in a godly manner. That as we walk before God, we're not doing these things just to be seen by other people, to be complimented by other people. Instead, we are doing it all for the glory of God. Realizing that in the private moments where it's just me and him, in the public moments where it's us with many other people, that all of our life is lived before a holy God who knows and who sees and who has given himself and died on our behalf and loves us and is strengthening us and teaching us his new way. So not only is God's way rejecting self and embracing him, but God's way is also awaiting him. And we can see this in verse number 13. The grace of God teaches us that we should live while looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We sang several songs this morning talking about Jesus coming again uh, from the very first song. One day the trumpet will sound for his coming. One day the skies with his glory will shine. Wonderful day my beloved one bringing. My Savior Jesus is mine. And we sing out on that chorus Come thou fount of every blessing. Come thou fount, come thou king, come thou precious prince of peace. Hear your bride, to you we sing, come thou fount of our blessing. One of the great promises of God's word is that Jesus is coming again. All of the promises that he would come the first time in the specific way, uh, the city that he would be born in, uh, the type of mother that he would be born to, the lineage that he would have, uh, all of the different circumstances of the prophecies surrounding his first coming all came true. So when the Bible says that Jesus is coming again, we can believe it. In John 14, Jesus promised his disciples 
that he would come again. He says, in my father's house, there are many mansions, dwelling places, addendums onto the father's house. He says, if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, and we know he did go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. We can see in Acts 1, as Jesus ascended up into heaven, that the angels promised the disciples that Jesus would come back in the same way that he left. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul gives comfort to the Thessalonians that we that are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will not prevent or stop those that are asleep or that have passed. He says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we that are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15 says, We will not all fall asleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. Then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And I love the great promise of Revelation 21, where it where John sees the future of when all of this takes place and God says the tabernacle of God is with men. He shall dwell within them. They shall be his people and almighty God will be with them. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are all passed away. And I love the promise then from that verse. He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And then he told John, he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. If we believe that Jesus came the first time, if we believe the scripture, then we need to also believe the scripture that Jesus is coming back again. And from verse 13, this is the blessed hope of the saints throughout all the ages, that Jesus will return. Now, this isn't intended to be a frightening or a scary thing for you. I remember as a kid, I, I was hoping, okay, Jesus, please don't come back before I'm able to drive, before I get to go to college, before I have a family. Just please don't come back before then. That's not the point of this incredible truth. And if you'll notice, the blessed hope is not merely heaven. Heaven by itself would be an incredible place that's designed by God himself that is perfect in literally every way. There's no disappointment there at all. But our blessed hope is Jesus. Uh, I love the song, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Man, we've, we've sung that song before and maybe you've sang it at someone's 
homegoing service or celebration of life, and you know the comfort that comes with those words, that Jesus is coming back and it gives us hope for our future because when we get downhearted, when we get discouraged, when we say, God, I don't know what you're doing, Um, I don't like my circumstances right now. When we say, God, I don't know if I can face, uh, face my life right now, we have the hope that Jesus is coming back. And if Jesus is coming back and he will make everything new and he will make all things right as he promised, then we can trust that his grace that brought us salvation will continue to teach us to reject ourselves, to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, to embrace him living soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world because we're looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So Paul gives this incredible outlook that God's grace brings salvation. He brings salvation for everyone that God's grace now is teaching us to reject our old way in honor of embracing God's new way while we await the Savior. But then we can see lastly in verse number 14 that God's grace is illustrated by his son. It says, "You you might not know to the young churches there in Crete, you might not know all the ways that grace looks yet, but let me give you an illustration of what God's grace looks like. It looks like Jesus. It says, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. So how is God's grace illustrated through Jesus? Well, we see that God's son gave himself for us. How does God's grace teach us to reject selfish actions, motives, and words? Jesus didn't seek even his own good, but gave himself entirely for us. Uh, We can read in Philippians 2 where it says, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Because even Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And we can see here in Titus 2, 14, that every word of this little phrase in here is important. It says that Jesus gave. It was a willing action. Jesus was not the victim of some cosmic child abuse. Jesus willingly gave himself on your behalf. He gave, it was a willing action. He gave himself. Jesus gave the full totality of everything that he had. We, many of us are familiar with the song. He could have called 10,000 angels. Jesus could have uh, just continued to send prophets, could have just sent a book down and said, follow all the rules in this book and you'll be fine. Instead, Jesus gave himself. That's how God's grace is. He gives all of it. He gives it entirely. God didn't give you a little bit less grace than he's given to someone else. He hasn't given you less grace than you need. Instead, he's given you all the grace 
you could ever need. As we sang last week, grace that is greater than all our sin. So Jesus gave, he gave himself, and he gave himself for us. That is, in our place as our substitute. That is the entire basis of salvation, that Jesus died in our place with the full weight of the world's sin upon him. And in return, he has given us his full righteousness, a perfect holiness that gets imputed onto our account when we, like Romans 6.23 says, when we accept God's gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. That Jesus was given all of the punishment, all of the sin was placed on him, and we get all of Christ's righteousness as a result. Not only do we see that God's son gave himself for us, but we can also see that God's son redeemed us. Uh, We can see this where it says, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. To be redeemed or redemption is to be bought out of slavery by the pain of a ransom. We are bought out of our slavery to sin and purchased for his service. Romans 6 says, so then being made free from sin, you became the servants. You became enslaved, enlisted into righteousness. Before, you had a slavery to only do what sin wanted you to do. But now, being made new through Christ, you are redeemed. You are bought back. One pastor said this, we are therefore taught that the death of Jesus was intended not for our forgiveness and justification merely, but also for our sanctification and our deliverance from the power of all besetting sins. God redeemed us from all iniquity. If Jesus was worthy enough to save you for eternity, don't you think he's worthy enough to be able to conquer the sins in your life that you don't think that you can beat? Hebrews 12 says, let it, Let us lay aside every weight or hindrance and the sin which so easily besets or ensnares us. And let us run with patience, with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. In Romans 7, the Apostle Paul is telling uh, the church there of the constant battle that he had between wanting to do what was right and instead doing what was wrong and not wanting to do what was wrong, but still falling into it anyway. And he ends that section by saying, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then with my mind, I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, I serve the law of sin. He, he basically tells them, I'm not perfect And I want to do what's right, but I'm not always able to do that. But then he begins the very next verse with this promise. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Let Christ's victory and authority over sin bring you hope for victory through his grace. If Jesus saved you, 
Jesus has bought you, redeemed you from all iniquity. Live your life in that victory. And then lastly, we can see here that God's son purifies us. Verse number 14 again, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Now here in this verse, uh, there's the word a peculiar people. Now I'm sure many of us could look around the room, maybe to a spouse or a sibling and say, oh, this is one of God's peculiar people. Uh, However, that's not what the word means. It's from the Latin word peculiaris. And something peculiar is one's own special possession. Uh, the word, the Greek word here, uh, periusos, is interesting. It means reserved for, and it was specially used for that part of the spoils of a battle or a campaign which the king who had conquered set apart especially for himself. God is purifying you as an individual, for himself to be his own special, precious possession. And uh, kind of the best illustration that I had of this that came deep from the recesses of my childhood was from Toy Story. And Andy would write on the shoe, or in this case, the boot, of all of his toys, his name. It was his. And all of us would remember the horror that came in the second movie when the one toy collector dude wiped off the writing. It was very traumatizing for me as a young child. But this is what God wants to do in your life, that he is purifying you. The word uh, is katharizo. We might use the word cauterize. He is cleansing us. And uh, if you know about cauterizing a wound, it can sometimes be a little painful in the process. But God is purifying us for himself so that when people see us, they know that we are his own special possession. That's what Jesus is purifying us for so that we would be identifiably his children. And then the last part of this, that he would purify unto himself a people for his own possession, zealous of good works. To be zealous is to burn with zeal, to be jealous for, to eagerly desire. This word in Greek literally is just zelotes, which comes from the Greek word that we just have as zealot. And we might not use zealot super often anymore. Uh, We might use the word uh, patriot. Everyone knows what it is to burn with zeal, to be very patriotic for your country. You can think of George Washington and the Revolutionary War and the patriots that fought for their country there. Uh, I couldn't help not thinking of Braveheart. Freedom! Uh, that, uh, That you have, that these people have their faces painted that they have their faces painted in just a very uh, patriotic, uh, you can instantly identify what people are jealous for or excited about. And as far as being zealous of good works goes, many of us can be zealous about plenty of other things in life. 
if you spend about 10 to 15 minutes in conversation with anyone, you can find out very quickly what they are zealous about. But we as Christians, as God purifies us to be his own special possession, his own people identified with him, we ought to be ones that are zealous of good works for others. And what would good works entail? Well, as grace teaches us, that we would live soberly, thinking about the world the way that God does, which can only happen as we dive into God's word and learn God's mind. We should live righteously, treating others the way that God wants us to, that we would do right by them, and that we would live in a godly manner, always realizing that we live before an audience of one. So we see that God brought salvation to you by giving himself for you, redeeming you from slavery to sin, and purifying you to be his own special possession, and he's coming back for you. This brings us hope. We can go through our life and and be very discouraged by many things, or we can learn to come back to God's word and remind ourselves again and again of these truths. So today, do you know Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord? We've learned much about salvation today, that though we are sinners, though all of us have done wrong, Romans 3 says that all have sinned and come short of God's glory. God has made a way through Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us. He died in our place on the cross, and he now offers us the gift of eternal life, of a restored relationship with God, of a new hope and mission for our life. Have you accepted that gift of salvation? And if you have, are you reminding yourself of the grace that God has given to you that not only brought you salvation, but is now teaching you, training you as a father teaches a child to reject self, to embrace God's new way, to wait for him as he promised to come back and then realizing that Jesus has perfectly modeled God's grace. And even if I don't know personally through my experience yet how God's grace looks, I can look at the person of Jesus and see how God's grace was illustrated in everything that Christ has done for me. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope it's been an encouragement to you. And if you'd like any further information about our church, we'd like to encourage you to visit mlbc.com dot church.